the Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. But I am a Christian first, a conservative second, and a Republican third. And I praise Jesus. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome to the Texas Politics Project podcast for the week of May 17th, 2016. I'm Jim Henson. I'm Josh Blank. And this week, the Texas Supreme Court saves the legislature's bacon by finding the public school finance system constitutional, though pretty lame. The Republican Party of Texas had its statewide convention last week. There was lots going on there, including the Republican leadership doubling down on bathrooms, particularly now that they can fight it out with the Obama administration. We'll start today with what is pretty much the biggest story in Texas, I think, and that's the Supreme Court saying the school finance system is broken but still constitutional. So this is a a huge legislative issue. It's a huge issue in terms of children across Texas and the future of the state, and it's something with lots of background. So Josh, tell us a little bit about the school finance system in Texas. Right. Well, the school finance system in Texas, and particularly its interaction with the justice system, has a a very, very long history. And we're only going to look at a a tiny, tiny slice of it, just to to be fair. No, no. We want to do the whole thing. We want to do the whole thing. How much time do you have? Given the public and the students, we have, take an hour. An hour? Well, I'll just, let's do the reason. Let's do the reason. We'll think about this later. This will be the extended version. We'll do the whole thing. So in the 2011 legislative session, they were facing a huge budget shortfall uh, on account of the financial collapse. And the result of that was that they cut $5.4 billion approximately. There's still some argument about exactly how much, but it seems that people settled on about $5.4 billion from the Texas uh, public school system. So the problem is, is that, you know, the Texas Constitution is very specific. And actually, Article 7, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution actually requires Texas to establish and make suitable provisions for a public school system. When the legislature cut you know, this $5.4 billion, a lot of the school districts cried foul. And actually, two-thirds of them, which is over 600 school districts, decided to sue the state. They made a lot of you know, constitutional arguments, but the three sort of big ones that got the most attention were that, one, you know, the state is mandating that they do a bunch of things, and they're now not giving them money to do it. Two, that basically by continually underfunding public education, it requires school districts and sort of the, the taxing districts to increase property taxes to the maximum allowable rate, which in effect was like a de facto property tax. That was the second argument. Well, statewide property right, tax, a statewide, which is a huge a, no-no. Right, that's a huge no-no. And then lastly, just that the funding was uneven and inequitable, and especially between sort of property-rich school districts and property-poor school districts. So in 2014, Travis County uh, Judge John Dietz agreed with the school districts. Obviously, the state quickly appealed this, and there's some more history and some back and forth between that decision and where we got last week. We'll set that aside. But the court ruled on Friday the system actually meets the constitutional requirements. That doesn't mean it's good. So Justice Don Willett wrote, and this was sort of the big quote that was making the rounds. I'll read it. It says, Our Byzantine school funding system, and I should point out, he put system in quotes, which I like. Nice touch. Yeah, it's a nice touch. Our Byzantine school funding system is undeniably imperfect with immense room for improvement, but it satisfies minimum constitutional requirements. 
So there's an audible gasp of relief around Austin. So why, why was that the case? Before answering that, we should start by noticing that Judge Willett is becoming kind of the Rosetta Stone of the insider group of Texas politics. For those of you that are on Twitter, find Judge Willett on Twitter. He got national press for being the Supreme Court justice that loved Twitter. Nonetheless, so why were people so responsive to this in the Capitol? Well, there's two things going on here. One, the cliche that you see in textbooks, in columns, in every discussion as the legislature comes into session is that the legislature really has to do one thing, and that's pass the budget. And this lawsuit was really hanging like the sword of Damocles over the budget process and the legislature. Really, it was about their last time, and they dodged the bullet. They kind of just skipped it because of the lawsuit. Now that the lawsuit has been resolved, the audible gasp of relief is that the legislature isn't going to have to come up with some way of finding money to fix the school funding system. So there's that. In a related way, it also just means less work. Right. When you come right down to it, and the history here is important in terms of the political history of school finance, this is not the first time the state has been sued over public school funding. It's happened periodically in the, in the state's recent history. And when the courts have ruled that the school system needed to be overhauled, it has become the huge piece of heavy lifting in the legislative session. Now, given what we're looking at right now, as we go into the session, the state's economy, given the price of oil and its ripple effect through the economy, and what people are beginning to suspect is a general economic slowdown right now. You're not hearing so much about the Texas miracle right. like we used to anymore. There's not going to be a lot of money to work with anyway. So the politics of this, if you take a, an alternate history, say the court had said, you have to go fix the school finance system. It's unconstitutional. And had said even even worse so, the property tax is unconstitutional. You're talking about overhauling a fundamental part of the budget and a fundamental public service at a time when everybody that is looking at this straightforwardly and doesn't have a stake in saying otherwise knows there's going to be less money. It's going to be a tight session. Just your best guess, just for fun. I mean, how many special sessions would we have had if they had ruled? They'd have been here all summer. I right. mean, there's just no, there's no way they'd have gotten this done in the regular session. As you look at the political currents... I think it's hard to overstate how good this is for the Republican majority in the legislature. There's been a lot of action, particularly on the, the right wing of the party that we've talked about before, trying to attack local taxation. Right. And a big piece of school finance, given this property tax thing and given the way that it's funded, has to do with local taxation. And that whole effort was likely to be derailed in a lot of ways, I think, if they had had to like reconstruct the school right. finance system. So they dodge at least two bullets, right? I mean, one bullet is just the whole, you know, how would they have even found the money to do this given the tightening Texas economy? Another piece is, you know, we already know that a big agenda item going forward in this legislative session is ways to restrict local entities from collecting right. property taxes. And that would have made this, you know, I mean, that would have just butt heads instantly. Yeah. Another sort of lesser thing that I've been thinking about, too, is just the experience, right? Jimmy Don Acock, who is sort of this longtime head, I guess, of, of public ed with tons and tons of experience, who actually proposed, you know, at least a path forward for sort of right. fixing this last session, and then withdrew it, knowing that there was no political will to do so with this court case at hanging. He's retired. I think that's sort of a third quiet bullet that was also dodged there, is that 
institutional experience. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I, I, you know, on one hand, every time an education chair leaves, I mean, the same thing happened when Hochberg left the legislature. He hadn't been chair, but he had been chair before. When Scott Hochberg left a few years ago, it was the same thing. It's like, oh my God, who's going who's gonna to know about education? There's always a couple people, but the problem is it is so complicated and so difficult that that's that's almost I think Byzantine is the a word factor. That yes, was... it's, it's Byzantine uh, to use Judge Willett. So this has been a huge joy. Now I think we don't want to be too cynical about this and say, okay, well the legislature now is not going to do anything about public education. Public education always is a close second to the budget in terms of it being something that the legislature deals with every session. It's expensive. It's a moving target. Demographic change in Texas really has this on the agenda, and anybody, frankly, who's honest about it will admit that the reality is school districts are very different. I mean, you know this. You know, you're out there looking at school districts. You have a young child thinking about the future. I mean, you have to be completely in denial of reality to not say that school districts are unequal in the state. In a totally self-interested sense, I'm just happy that the status quo will maintain so I can try to figure out what I'm doing. Right. Well, then they'll change it. Then they'll change it. But that's, you know. Okay. So so, no doubt we'll come back to that. Another big story this week is the fallout from last week's Republican Party of Texas convention, which was just beginning to convene when we recorded last week's podcast. Now, the basics of this, uh, the, the state parties in our party system have conventions. Their purposes vary depending on party rules in Texas. They're there to nominate the delegates that will represent the different candidates as a result of the primary election in Texas. They're there to elect the state party chair, and there was a big fight, kind of a far-right versus the farther-right fight between a couple of different contenders in which the far-right candidate won, not the farther-right candidate. And probably most interesting in terms of where we are right now and, and in terms of some of the discussions going on in the state, they're there to adopt the state party platform. And the platform fights, in some ways, were the things that became the most interesting, even though we'll talk about the platform fights and then talk about how people said the platform doesn't matter. The truth is the platform doesn't matter, but it, for people who watch, this stuff is really interesting. I mean, in some ways, the platform doesn't certainly doesn't net you any voters. It's not as though, you know, the, the Republican Party of Texas platform is something that voters are going through. The, I think they had like 264 planks right. in the end. Nobody's going through and saying, you know, on balance, do I, does this party represent me now? And it's really not in Texas, certainly not anywhere. Yeah, Republicans don't lose general election fights because of the platform. No. I mean, this is really more so, I think, about the media and the other party in a lot of ways. You know, I think the last platform, they were talking about reparative therapy for for gay, you know, gays and homosexuals. And that was a whole thing that I think Democrats kind of looked at as, you know, an opportunity. But it's not something that really means anything going forward for the most part for for anyone, really. I mean, this is sort of an insider thing. And I mean, that, that was one of the interesting discussions going in. There were sort of two little quiet discussions that I was watching just purely for entertainment value. One, you know, there's this question that comes up every time of, is the Texas Republican Party going to include like a secession event or a plank in the party right. platform? And of course they didn't. And there was pretty good sense that they weren't going to. It's sort of a small group, but it's always there. And that's kind of interesting. The other was this idea of whether the platform should be this big piece of 260 planks or whether it should just be sort of smaller and broad principles. And this kind of actually, I think, gets to like what's actually going on at this thing a little bit more, I think, and kind of what I just said, which is, 
I think more of the elites, the people driving the party, would much rather have this be a small thing guided by principles, knowing that it doesn't mean much and can only have really kind of negative implications for them based on some of the more extreme elements who want to add some extreme pieces of orthodoxy to the party. And then the, so the question was, general purpose, broad principles, or are we going to vote on all, all every single plank? And basically, not surprisingly, grassroots kind of wins of these things. And it was 264 planks, I think, yeah. that were all approved. The platform fights become almost like a kind of heat check in the party. I mean, I've gone to a couple of these conventions just to shoot video and to, to cover them. And it really is interesting. I mean, that we talk a lot recently about the division between elites in the Republican Party or elites in the parties and the grassroots. And the conventions are actually another interesting layer mm -hmm. because what they are is they're activists. I mean, in some ways, they're the most active of the Republican true believers. And the same is true on the Democratic side when you go to the convention. The smoke-filled room is not at the state party convention. No. You know, the state party convention is where you have a few thousands of people there and they are people that are very unlike most other average people that do politics. And so they're here to fight over these for kinds of For one, they're paying points. for a hotel room in Dallas to be at this thing, right. which is crazy. Although, you know, you, you get the sense, you know, they're spread out. Doing the conventions is really, I mean, it's, it would be a great thing to, to use instructionally in some way if you could take somebody and walk them around a convention and introduce them to people. Um, you know, they, it would be very instructive. Yeah, it, it, it may be alienating, but, but the kind of people that you meet are very interesting, but not like your average voter. They pay a lot of attention. They're deeply invested. And this is why, in a way, I, I think you're never in Texas anyway in the foreseeable future going to get the party platform to be about a bunch of general principles because people want their thing in there. Right. I mean, you know, when they discuss, for example, secession, even when they vote against it, there's still a lot of cheering that goes on during the secession discussion. So the other thing about the parties that's interesting is that they're magnets for the press. Right. And I think the press coverage ultimately winds up giving a kind of distorted or, amplifies or perhaps it overly amplified, it's probably a better term, version of what goes on there. And even in the stories that you're reading, I mean, I read a story, I think it was in the Austin American Statesman, talking about the secession plank, in which the reporter actually included in the story the fact that the media gets blamed for over-amplifying the secession story, which I think is actually very true. Probably right. But it was kind of a, a pissy little comment in the story saying that, nonetheless, there were lots of people cheering in the hall. Well, it's an error of interpretation on their part rather than the fact that it doesn't exist. Now, the, probably the major thing in the platform, at least in terms of media coverage this time, was our old friend the bathroom issue. So basically, in the uh, the language that they said was, we urge the enactment of legislation addressing individuals' use of bathrooms, showers, and locker rooms that correspond with their biologically determined sex. Until you get to the very end, it sounds like there's a hygiene plank in yeah, the Yeah, no, platform. it sounds like, yeah, exactly. They just exactly. want people to be more clean. Soap on a rope and, uh, and sandals. So this is back to the politics of bathrooms, again, which seems to be cropping up just again and again. So first, real quick, what is, you know, a bathroom bill? Let me just start with the real basics here. Right. So a bathroom bill is basically any law that seeks to allow or ban, can go both directions, transgender individuals from using a public facility. And usually their focus is bathrooms, but it's like, it could be locker rooms or showers. Uh, and they want to, you know, basically 
making sure those public photos, court, they use the ones that correspond with their gender identity. So either you can do this or you can't. I was going back to thinking, I was looking and what's the, what's the history on this? And a lot of the recent history is actually the reaction to kind of the longer history that's been going on quietly for, for a little while now. Right. And actually dovetails nicely with a lot of things we've been talking about, local control, kind of the state legislatures pushing back on local ordinance. As early as 2009, a movement in Vermont was sought to make gender-neutral bathrooms available to transgender teens, and technically all teens, right? Because it's, it's for everybody. Right. You know, a lot of states kind of moved ahead in a lot of areas, like sort of small cities sort of pushed ahead on this kind of stuff, some larger cities. Austin, apparently, in 2014, approved a law requiring gender-neutral signage on single-occupancy bathrooms, because what, right. what difference does it make, I guess? Other cities in some states have been making sort of these similar accommodations. The one that you've heard about more recently is in North Carolina. They passed this law, HB2, which requires people to use the bathroom of their birth gender. And this is actually, again, a response to a Charlotte law. So Charlotte basically said, you know, let's allow people to use the bathroom associated with their gender identity. North Carolina said no. North Carolina legislature. North Carolina legislature, Or the assembly right. or whatever they call it there. Right. So this is the one that you've been heard about. And this is the one where the businesses have sort of been pushing the backlash against this, saying, you know, this is discriminatory. A lot of artists have been boycotting North Carolina. You know, here in Texas, uh, two bills sort of that would do similar things were filed in the 2015 session, ended up not going anywhere. Later that year in Houston, the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, or HERO, was repealed. Now, it was a general equal rights ordinance, but it was repealed largely based on the argument that it would allow sexual predators pretending to be transgender into women's restrooms. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was a big player in this. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the HERO ordinance fight in Houston presaged a lot of the national politics that we're seeing now. And, right. and, and it's a way in which our lieutenant governor has been... Shrewd may be too strong a word, but, you know, some mixture of shrewd and lucky in seeing some things coming and getting in front of them. Uh, And on this, I think the lieutenant governor was well positioned as this became a national issue. So the latest chapter in this is that last Friday, the Obama administration announced that they would be sending a letter to school districts, essentially urging them to provide access for transgender students with the gender of, that they chose to identify with and that this had impli- and that they were sending this because it was consistent with federal law in particular title 9 of the, the civil rights law. So, Needless to say Dan Patrick was very upset. So, Dan Patrick was very upset but so upset that he had a press conference that got national coverage almost immediately. So, we have some audio from that that press conference that actually got covered in the front page of the New York Times the next day. He says he's going to withhold funding if schools do not follow the policy. Well, in Texas, he can keep his 30 pieces of silver. We will not yield to blackmail from the president of the United States. Now, you get a clear sense that the lieutenant governor is going to be out front of this, and the he, obviously, that he was referring to was President Obama. And, and President Obama is a very convenient and, and perpetual foil that I think in some ways, I would say that re- the Republicans in the state will be sorry to see him go, but uh, should Hillary Clinton win the presidency, they're not, they'll, be, they'll, they'll probably okay. not miss much of a beat, yes. Um, I would also point out that the 30 pieces of silver in the New Testament, as I recall, and I don't read a lot, but was not about blackmail. I think it was betrayal, but that's different. I don't know why you're looking at me. I'm an Old Testament guy. <laughs> I think I'm just, I just want to make sure. Okay, so... 
Dan Patrick inserted himself into the national news. He was on the cable channels in the New York Times, as I said. The uh, president, so it was raised at the, uh, uh, later in the day at the, press, at the daily briefing by President Obama's press secretary, Josh Ernest. So let's see what Josh had to say, the other Josh. Well, I think this does underscore the risk of uh, electing a right-wing radio host to a statewide elected office. Um, so let's just uh, walk through the facts here. Ouch. I think the kids say snap. Or maybe the, the millennials. I don't know. But so uh, obviously the White House is not particularly impressed with Lieutenant Governor Patrick's response. But no, that's not that's not especially surprising, I don't think. But the politics of this in Texas are to some degree a no-brainer for Republicans, but also kind of resonate with the national political environment and what we're seeing the Republican Party going through with divisions over over Donald Trump, et cetera, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the to the previous point we're talking about the Republican Party uh, convention in Texas. I mean, the other sort of big news that came out of that was sort of what were what were the big statewides doing in their speeches? What was Greg Abbott talking about? What was Dan Patrick doing? Although this really kind of sucked. This was most of the Dan Patrick stuff in the end. You know, what was Ted Cruz up to? And we've been talking about this a little bit. You know, to the extent that Donald Trump is sort of this, you know, let's say atypical. I think that's can- atypical. I think that's, fair. that's generous. Atypical candidate. You know, the Republican Party is kind of dealing with the fact that there's there's a little bit of a leadership vacuum. I mean, there's sort of a, a little a little tiff that I think really you know illustrates this. Normally, you know, candidate secures the nomination, then the party apparatus, you know, the Republican National Committee, the Democratic National Committee, is sort of handed over to that candidate kind of wholesale. They sort of put in some of their own people, they keep some people, but they take over that organization, really take over the party organization. And when Donald Trump basically secured the nomination, there was this sort of discussion like, well, are we going to hand this over exactly? What are we doing? Now, this is just a little incident of this, but it kind of speaks to this general like, so are we all buying into this kind of question? And that has created this space for some of these people to kind of try to fill, right? Yeah, I I think the way I'm thinking about it is that what you describe is a a fight over the administrative apparatus and and the organizational infrastructure of the party. One of the byproducts of that is that candidates that are used to speaking for the more traditional and more ideologically dedicated and conservative wing of the party are looking around and seeing some room to run. So, for example, Donald Trump has been on the record saying that he really didn't think this bathroom thing was a big deal. Right. Essentially. Not so, says Dan Patrick. Not so, says Lieutenant Governor, and not so say a lot of people that are going to jump in that space. And I think what we're going to see, and Patrick himself said that, you know, he would be He's suggesting that he would be advising Donald Trump to take a different position on this. And Trump responded pretty quickly, saying that he thought it was something that should be left to the states, which ironically is a very reflexive, old school political Republican move to say, uh, I I don't really know exactly how I want to commit to this, but it should definitely be left up to the states. Well, if Donald Trump is going to leave that up to the states, you can bet that particularly in conservative states like Texas, there are going to be lots of people ready to jump in that space and and fill it. And in an interesting way, this could actually provide cues for Trump and also help down-ballot candidates by providing some other kind of messaging associated with the Republican Party as we head into a general election, I think. Right. Donald Trump doesn't necessarily have to be the person you're, who represents Republicans overall. There's a lot of other people who want to, even especially in Texas, who want to be sort of the, the avatar of conservative Republicanism, even if Donald Trump is not running 
as a conservative Republican, right? Right. So Greg Abbott is touring. I think he's in New York right now on his book tour, which is, you know, basically, in some, you know, and also I guess he's also does push to amend the Constitution in similar ways and sort of right. all kind of, you know, as these things are, they're kind of munged together fairly. But Yeah, and for that matter, both Abbott and Ted Cruz even as the bathroom issue was unfolding, got involved with pronouncements on international issues. So uh, Abbott was pushing back against the Obama administration on the Iran deal and, uh, and saying that, you know, Texas would be, you know, probably he, that he was going to ask the Texas legislature to increase Texas sanctions against Iran. Great. Well, that, Iran is upset about so, that, so, I'm sure. So basically, you know, Ted Cruz had... You know, something that had a New York Times op-ed piece, and I think he just got unlucky in the timing. The Obama administration stepped on him. There was also foreign policy, Middle East oriented. So you see all, you know, a lot of these guys beginning to position themselves in into some of the space that, that Trump has left open. Um, you know, and, and it works for their own political ambitions to reestablish their position at the state level, with particularly uh, with Abbott and Patrick, to make sure they continue to block out any potential challengers, not that there are a ton. And even, I think, to bank a kind of plausible deniability in the event that, as we expect, Trump gets the can- gets the candidacy and then loses and turns out to be a disaster, you can be the guy that was fighting the good fight while Trump was out there being self-aggrandized and wrecking the party. Right. You can run parallel sort of, you know, to what he's doing and still have your own brand, your own identity. And, and, and claim that, yeah, but claim at the same time that you were being, yeah, you're being a, a good, good soldier. Definitely. So you've had Patrick be pretty direct about supporting Trump by name at the convention in his speech. Abbott was much more coy, called for all the Texas Republicans to support the ticket, but did not utter Trump's name in his speech. Cruz came back the next day and didn't talk about Trump or really the ticket much at all, talked about staying true to conservatism. So everybody continues to adjust to a post-Trump world, which is the one we all live in. So I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, This is Jim Henson and Josh Blanks, and we'll see you next week. 